One of the first big lessons that you learn in your life is how to put on a front, isn't it? I mean, you learn how to drink milk, or you learn how to, and there's people laughing because there's people like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, how to put on a front. You learn it probably in the playground at school between the ages of about five, and some of us get it a bit later on, about 10. And, and you realize that you don't have to always cry when the bully picks on you. You can, you can pretend. You can front up. You can act. You can put on a face. And this skill is a really good skill. And it actually will get you a long way in life. And you'll, you'll progress this skill. And you'll think, okay, here's an occasion where I need to front up. I need to act. I need to pretend. And you do it in the job interview or you do it when you're dating the girlfriend, or whatever, whatever it is that you're doing, and you front up and you project a different person of yourself, you pretend. And this plan is a really good plan, and it works out really, really well for you. It might get you on in your career, it might get you to establish lots of friends, but then you come to that point in your life where you want a real, genuine relationship, and you realize that the one thing that's not helpful is the front having the front, you realize that in order for this relationship to go anywhere, then the front needs to go. Dating, for example, you think of as just something that we keep doing over and over again as another way to show how brilliant you are. It's another date I've got. Here's another opportunity to show my girlfriend how awesome I am. And yet, it's not really about that. It's an opportunity for them to hang around with you long enough to see your real self to get to know you. You see, relationships aren't established on pretense. Their foundation is built on trust and honesty. And perhaps we can all go, yeah, I can get that. I've been watching a, a fly-on-the-wall documentary. In fact, I've watched, I've watched one episode, and I don't really normally go in for fly-on-the-wall documentaries, but it was almost for research purposes. It's called Call the Mediator. Have you watched it? Brilliant. It's the worst way to start an illustration when you say something like that. <laughs> have you watched it? Everyone goes, no, I've not seen it. I've not seen it before. Anyway, well, I can tell you about it. And actually, I'm not going to promote it because it was terrible. It was really hard work to watch. It was really cutting. It's, it, the premise of it is it's people who are going through divorce, who don't want to go through the courts, who go to a mediator. And it was just so painful to watch. And the way that these editors put this documentary together, actually, they showed you the moments in their life when there was true love. They'd show a photograph, and they were kissing over a bottle of sangria on a honeymoon. They were both sun-kissed. And it was this beautiful moment, and then they'd cut to this room where there were two gloomy people sat there, angry with each other, full of bitterness. And there was piles and piles and piles of legalistic documents sat on the side, which represented their marriage. It was a picture of what marriage looks like, what a relationship looks like when the love has gone. It was just legal documents, stipulations, stuff. You could look at the picture and say, yeah, I can see how you two are together, and if I trawled through all this information, that would connect. I could see way, way back there was a time when you were in love, but now all that I can see there is this kind of empty legalistic picture and it's really awkward to watch and it's one of these kind of documentaries that does it really well that makes you feel awkward it's like car crash tv but you can't switch it off so i hated an hour of it but couldn't look past it one of the ways we looked at the bible last week was to say that it was all about a story that was coming together at a certain point you remember the journey of the old testament is people coming together in a place and then you get to the point in the new testament and then the word goes out to the whole world another way to look at 
the story of the Bible is of as it as a love story. The Bible is a love story. Trace it back through the Old Testament. Think about God and his people. Look at the way that God's provided for his people. Think about language like promises and covenants. People make a covenant with God. God makes a covenant with people. This is a love story. The people are unfaithful. God forgives them. They come back together. It's ropey. There's up and down moments, but God looks after them in it all. It is a love story. There's even points in it, if you can read through the big books of prophecy long enough, where some of the language is fruity, for want of a better expression. It is romantic language. Ezekiel could say, he describes Israel in God's eyes as being like a beautiful woman. And this beautiful woman is God's. It's love language. God loves his people. Deuteronomy 7.9, this is the book of the law. You wouldn't expect to find love language in a book of the law, but yet Deuteronomy 7.9 says, know that the Lord your God is God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. And in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, we're told that we are, that God's people are, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's a love story. And think about this. Jesus comes back. Jesus comes to earth, and he's walking around the streets of Judea. And we've established in Luke, haven't we, that he's God. And he knows all about this love story. He knows God's heart for this people. He knows how God feels about this people. God loves them. And yet as he looks around the streets of Jerusalem and Judea, what kind of people does he find? What are the pictures that he finds? He sees evidence for the relationship that existed, this loving relationship, but all he can find, all he keeps bumping into with the religious leaders are like these ring binders of law, evidence for a relationship that was in the past, and it breaks his heart. And it cuts him. And we're going to see three stories. I know there was, I was reading through the texts with you, and I remember thinking, that's a lot of text. And we've got a quarter of an hour. I'm going to do it. I'm going to bang it in. I'm going to fit through it. Don't worry about that. You're not going to be, well, maybe give me five minutes leeway, something like that. But we're going to get through it. But it's just three stories banged together. Maybe you didn't notice it. Of people who were kind of empty, faithless. In terms of what Jesus was looking for, they were just just like legalistic. And Jesus keeps bumping into them and he confronts them with it. And there's just some lessons along the way that we can learn, not about how we shouldn't be at the end of a broken relationship, but how we can keep the love alive. And there should be a less cheesy way to say that. But that's kind of the sentiment that I want to get at. So three stories, and we'll go through them really quickly. The first story, I don't know if we could have the text up at this point. It'd be grand if we could. About verse 14, Jesus is driving out demons. You can maybe... There we go. Awesome. Jesus is driving out demons. And the people say it's by Beelzebub. And what they're saying is, you're in league with the devil. And Jesus keeps his cool at this moment. And he, just, he uses common sense. He says, I'm not in league with the devil. Why would, why, if I was in league with the devil, why would, why would I drive out demons? That doesn't make sense. That's not logical. It, it's counterproductive for me if I was working for the devil to drive out demons. It doesn't make sense. So he uses, uses logic and as I've looked through this chapter, Jesus uses logic, I'll say that a bit slower, Jesus uses logic quite a lot in his defense, just very calm, no, this is not what I'm doing. But if I am driving out demons, and he gets them to think about a concept here, if I am driving out demons, then you've got to accept, and I'm not from the devil, you've got to accept that God's kingdom has come, because you're seeing something different here. You're seeing God at work, you're seeing signs, 
and you're seeing miracles. And then Jesus gives the people something to think about. I'm just going to read it out. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live in there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And you're all reading that thinking, I hope you're going to explain this, Ash, because that's, this is new ground for me. I'm not sure where we're heading here. But in essence, these people had exorcists of their own. The Jewish people had exorcists of their own who would drive out demons. But Jesus is saying that in, in driving out the demon and leaving and not replacing it with anything, and I think this is what Luke's wanting us to see, he's not replacing it with anything. The demon's gone, but you've just got this vacant person who's vulnerable to anything filling his mind up. Jesus is, is pointing us to the threat of the spiritual battle that's going on. Jesus is saying, this person's vacant. You've, what, your, your work is insufficient. You've not replaced it. You've just taken, taken the demon away, and this person is vulnerable. It's a great picture for us to think about. And if you, we're not going to do it. There's loads of stories, and time's beating us, but there's story after story after story where what you see here is a spiritual battle. All the sort of construct of the text describes a spiritual battle, and it's a spiritual battle that we're naive to, I think. So in the text there, there's the strong man and the stronger man, the strong man being the devil and the stronger man being Jesus who overpowers him. There's demons going around causing trouble. And Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. If, if you don't gather with me, then you scatter. Jesus is describing a constant conflict. There is this image of constant conflict. And then there's this danger with that of being passive, of not being filled with anything. You are vulnerable to spiritual attack. It's not a concept that we think about. It's the biggest battle going on in the whole universe. The only battle that counts, the spiritual battle. It's the cause of all the problems, of all the conflict in all the world. It's the spiritual battles. And we walk through life quite passively, don't we? Thinking that nothing's really happening. That the TV program we let ourselves watch isn't really influencing us that much. It's not going to take us that far, of course. We are being influenced, shaped, and molded all the time. Jesus wants us to be aware, and Luke through Jesus, and Jesus... Luke, describing what Jesus is doing, wants us to be aware of this spiritual battle that is going on all the time. And we can exist sometimes passively, just going through life, just wandering through life, taking each next day. With the best will in the world, we can just be a bit passive. And Luke gets us to think about the spiritual battle. As I get older, I love more and more wildlife documentaries. It's almost like a disease. I seem not to be able to fight against it anymore. So if one's on TV, I will watch it. There was one on recently called The Hunt. don't know if anybody saw it. It was from the perspective of the hunter. And I think it was trying to let you know that they have a hard time too or something like that. They showed you skinny big polar bears who were struggling to eat and I didn't buy it. I still wanted whatever was running away to get away. That was my perspective. Whatever's, whatever's running away, I want to get away. And there was this one scene with these gazelles who, and I'm going to try and be a bit um, I'm going to try and represent the image of the gazelles. Just, you know, you see it anyway. They're just they're chewing the grass, and there's like thousands of them in this big, this big plateau, this big field, chewing the grass, completely passive, completely unaware of danger. Ears perhaps going on a little bit roundabout like that, thinking about things. And then, as the documentary pans off, 
Richard Attenborough softly narrates the journey of these three lions, and you can almost, these three lions sneaking, and you can almost see them being strategic. It's almost like, you, you bolt that way, you, bolt that way, I'll go through the middle. Like, we'll get dinner. And there's this plan going on, do you know what I mean? As you watch this documentary, all the antelopes are in the middle, these three lions are sneaking about, and I'm trying to think now whether they're boy lions or girl lions. I think they're girl lions, aren't they normally? I don't know. The girl, these girl lions are sneaking around, and one of them makes a bit too much noise, and then this whole field of gazelles just bursts away, just exits really quickly, and there's a big puff of smoke, and then you know what's coming next. There's one gazelle stood in the middle of this field. Smoke clears, gazelle still chewing, looking around, passive. <laughs> like, what happened there? <laughs> Sun's out, the grass is good, why did we leave? You know, what's... I don't get it. I'm staying. This is a good place. I'm happy with this. And you're screaming at the TV. You're saying, run. You're about to die. Leave. See the battle around you. See the circumstances that you're in. And the gazelle, and I want us to focus on this image and let it sink in. The gazelle is there. Just, and you can see it in your head, can't you? Just chewing away on the grass like, what's the big deal? I'm quite fine. And then the lions, and you know it's coming, and you want to switch it off because it's going to be gruesome. And the lions pounce on the gazelle, and the gazelle's dead. Or it looks like it's dead. Its back leg's still trying to go on an escape plan. Its back leg's kicking away, thinking it's going to get away, but it's not going to get away. The gazelle's dead. I want you to hold the image in your minds of this passive gazelle. This gazelle who's got no concept of what's coming. Sometimes we go through life like that, just passive, just completely unaware of the spiritual battles that are going on around us. Just these massive, big battles going on around us. And Luke reminds us that these things are happening and we cannot be passive. We can't be just drifting through life. We have got to be filled with something. And Luke's going to give us clues as to what that is. And he keeps slipping in these, these mentions of the Holy Spirit. It's the first indication at the end of the Lord's Prayer. You need to seek out this better way. You need to seek out this Holy Spirit. It talks about it at the end of chapter 12. It's not in the text. When the disciples are going to come before the rulers of the earth, he says, don't worry about what you've got to say. Seek out the Holy Spirit. And he will build on this argument till we get to Acts chapter 1, and we'll see how important this idea of being filled is. Peter could say, beware, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter uses the same sort of imagery. Imagery that's necessary because we just gazelle-like walk through the world sometimes unaware of the spiritual battles that are going on. And the devil's got no interest in chatting to us. He wants to destroy us. wants to get us out of church. wants to get us in difficult relationships. wants to get us in wrong places. wants to just completely destroyers. And Luke just tells us, you need to be aware of this. And Luke shows us, you need to be being filled with something. Really quick point, and there's not time for it at all. But I'm going to make it really quickly, because I think it's important. This idea of meditating, it's a word we're scared of, I think, sometimes within Christian circles. We think that's for other religions, right? But actually, meditation's mentioned a lot in the Bible. And we have this connotation that it's about being emptied, don't we? Contemporary meditation is a bit of like this idea of you're just going to empty your mind and find a, 
some Zen or whatever it is that you find. Actually, biblical meditation is this idea of being filled up with God's Word. Filled up so you're equipped. Filled up so you're ready. Filled up so you've got an opinion that is of the Bible. It's this idea of chewing the cud. That's where, that's where the Word finds its origin in the Old Testament. This idea that you take God's Word and you chew it around in your mouth like a cow long enough so it fills up your mind. So that when temptation comes, when the struggle comes, when the battle comes, you're thinking spiritual thoughts. You're thinking godly thoughts all the time. Very quick, this idea about being filled up. And I'm going to have to really get my skates on. No more gazelle anecdotes today. Next story, and it's, it's the text is Luke 11, 29 through 30. More and more people are coming around Jesus looking for a sign. This is, this is the way it's going for Jesus. He, his fame is increasing, and he goes around more and more. But the questions that keep coming back, kind of faithless questions, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Luke 29, 30 and 32. As the crowds increase, Jesus says, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. There comes a point in our lives when this when frequently asking a question doesn't represent an inquiry anymore. It actually represents faithlessness. It's a statement of faithlessness. Think about it. When you're doing a job at work and somebody comes up to you and they say once, are you okay with that? Can I help you with that? If they say it once or maybe twice, you're like, oh, this is an inquiry. That's fine. They're being helpful. If that is all that this person ever asks of you week after week, are you okay with that? Can you do that? It ceases to be somebody being helpful, and it starts to be a statement of faithlessness. What they're saying is, I don't think you can do this. That's what they're saying. If they ask it long enough, I don't think you can do this. Jesus comes across these people who keep on asking him, we need a sign. Only question they've got time after time, we need a sign. We need a sign. Jesus is doing miracle after miracle after miracle, and the people keep saying, we need a sign. We need a sign. We need a sign. And when you ask that question so many times, what's revealed is not a faithful inquiry. It's a faithless statement. One of the big messages in Luke is that this message is for everyone. Remember last week, who was the good guy? The Samaritan. Not a people group that the Jewish nation were ready to like. This week, the people, that, the people group that, that were shown that the message is going to is the Ninevites. Luke reminds us, Jesus reminds us, that these people accepted the sign. And think about, think about kind of what Jesus' argument is here. Jesus says, I've given you all the signs that you're going to get. Giving you all the signs. If you want to think about another sign, just remember Jonah. You remember Jonah? Wasn't that great of a prophet. Was a bit faithless, was a bit scared, got jumped overboard, didn't really want to go to the, to the right place where I was sending him. Eventually ended up there, and these people that nobody likes, the Ninevites, they receive that message. Well, here I am, Jesus, God's son, with a better message, with better signs, and I'm right in front of your nose, and you are not receiving the sign. It's faithlessness. They don't believe it. There's a few lessons, I think, along the way that we can take from this passage. What does faithlessness look like? 
we think often of it being quite an extreme thing, don't we? It's like fleeing the situation or just completely letting somebody down, complete abandonment. That's faithlessness, right? No, faithlessness is when God has already given us enough, enough signs for us to allow us to respond faithfully and we keep asking for more. Faithlessness is when God has already given us enough to allow us to respond faithfully and we keep asking for more. Something to be learned, I think, about God here. One of the messages that the Bible speaks consistently is that God has, uses this word in Romans, I think, demonstrated his love. In terms of signs that we here today in 2016 need to receive, God has demonstrated his love for us. It's really clear. We spent a couple of minutes thinking about it. It's done. In terms of what God can demonstrate, and I'm I'm still a believer that God... I felt like God spoke to me today on my pre-sermon walk. I think God still works through signs. I think God still wants people inquiring about him. But I think God, I know God wants people of faith. God wants people of faith. Something for us to think about. If we keep coming and asking questions and saying, oh, I'll wait, want to know more about Jesus, what, what statement are we making If that's our only question, what statement are we making? And for us Christians, it's a big part of our language, isn't it? We're going to wait for a sign. I've used it today. We we use it a lot. It's part of our vocabulary. I think this is a sign. We kind of look for it. And I think that God does work in these ways. But I I wonder often if God looks at us and says, "What what are you playing at? What are you playing at? Look at my Bible. Look at the word I've given you. I've given you some really good signs already and and you choose options that aren't in line with this word and then say to me i'm hanging on for a sign that this might be the right thing to do do you know what i mean you're reading through the word and god has god has so many principles in his word it just it's soaked with the way that we should live and then we don't live that way and we say i'm hoping for a sign to affirm the right kind of way that i'm living we've got to be careful i've got to be careful with this kind of language god has given us some great signs. He's demonstrated his love. He's given us his word. God will still speak through signs, but some of the signs are smack in front of our face already. Final story. I'll do it in two or three minutes. It's the scene. It's in um, 11.37 through 54. I don't know if you could skip on to that text. Jesus finished speaking, and a Pharisee invites him in to eat with him. So he goes in, reclines at the table, and the Pharisee is surprised that Jesus doesn't wash his hands. That's his big surprise. He's surprised he isn't washing hands. Then Jesus says to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. It's one of those moments, and maybe you've had moments like these at your dinner table or around with friends, when the hypocrisy is so great that you can't help but open your mouth. You're just compelled. You've just got to. Now let's remember what it's like from Jesus' perspective. He knows about this relationship between God and his people. He knows what, exactly what love looks like. He knows what this relationship should look like. He knows what these people have been through. And, and when he meets people that are supposed to be connected, married to God, and their biggest concern is that Jesus hasn't washed his hands right, Jesus can't hold back 
He's like, I have got to speak into this. This is too hypocritical. The legalism and the emptiness of this is frightening. So he goes through, and we're not going to go through all, but he, goes, he says to him, woe are you. Woe are you, because you've got the wrong end of the stick massively. I'll read a few out. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. He's saying, you focus, you focus on this stuff, on like the tiny bits of the law. You really hammer, hammer them home and keep those, and yet you're willing to let your mate out in the street starve to death. It's like you've got the wrong end of the stick. You've missed the heart of the law. And he sees them. He sees, he sees the brokenness of their relationship. He sees, them, he sees them in their broken state. And he says, no, it's not about that. This is about love. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. He's saying, you've got, you're motivated wrong. You've got the wrong end of the stick with motivation. You're not in the job for the right reasons. It's about love. And Jesus keeps running in to religious leaders who are empty, who don't demonstrate love, but manage to keep the legalistic parts of the law. It's like that documentary that we talked about. There's what love looks like on the one hand. There's the, remember the couple kissing over the bottle of sangria? There's what love looks like, and there's what, what a marriage looks like without any love in it, just trawling through legal documents, arguing over silly things. And Jesus says, this is what I'm, I'm finding this stuff. I'm not seeing evidence of love, and I know what that looks like. He says, I'm seeing evidence of a broken relationship and people who are hanging on to the stipulations in the law. And what he would say to us now, I think, is with our tendencies, he says, I've come to see what's on the inside. That's what interests me. More and more people come. More and more people come to see Jesus. Start of chapter 12, and Jesus turns to his disciples and whispers something to him, gives him a heads up, gives him a glimpse of the kingdom. He can see the legalistic emptiness of all these people, and he says, you need to be aware of this, because I'm seeing loads of external evidences of religion, but I'm not seeing anything on the inside. I've walked through the streets of Jerusalem. I can see the temple. I see how people dress. I can smell the kind of food. I, I see how they're connected to God. I see the relationship, but it's, there's an emptiness to it. And what really counts is what's on the inside. So Jesus looks at his disciples and he whispers to them, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. It's verse 2 and 3 of chapter 12. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden, that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. What he's saying is, I've seen, I've seen all this external religion and I see straight through it. And in my kingdom, the kingdom that's coming, the stuff that you'll see clearly, the stuff that will be shouted from the rooftops, is the stuff that's in there. That's the real stuff. Jesus goes around the streets of Jerusalem looking for a love story, looking for people of faith, looking for genuine relationships, and he finds people who are acting out what marriage looks like, and he condemns it. He's still looking for people of faith. He's still looking for people who are willing to respond genuinely with love. And that's our challenge from these three dark stories. Will we be people of faith? Will we be people who are genuine in what we do? Or are we acting it out?